necessarily the case. Become a student of people, not a student of religion. With, with that said, what I want to do is just give you a thumbnail sketch of what does Islam look like? What does Islam teach? And then we're going to hone in on one specific theology in Islam, and then I want to give you a Jesus perspective of that theology. Uh, Islam uh, is a religion that began in 570 with the birth of Muhammad. Muhammad was uh, living in Mecca, and he was a poor uh, camel driver that ultimately married a wealthy camel owner. She owned a, a, a caravan. Her name was Khadijah. And, and then Muhammad became wealthy and had a lot more time to do things that were quite common in his tribe, which was the Quraysh tribe. And that was to go and pray. Once a year in particular, it was part of their tradition that they would go and pray. In particular, he would go into a cave and he would pray. One time he was in a cave as he's praying and an angel begins to speak to him. Now, he wasn't convinced, though, that it was an angel. He, at first, was convinced it was a demon and believed that he was demon-possessed for quite some time. Now, every, please understand everything I'm telling you is, is from their tradition, okay? He ended up going back to his wife, Khadijah, and begins to explain to her that he's hearing voices and he's worried that he's demon-possessed. And then she, I, I don't have time to tell you all of what happens, but she ultimately talks him out of that. And he begins to see himself as a prophet. And he then begins to start this religion of Islam, which was mainly understood as a monotheistic religion, a one-god religion, in the midst of his Koresh tribe, which is a polytheistic religion. They had 320 gods. Muhammad began to grow in his... uh, Significance began to grow in his following, and the Quraysh tribe grew in their hatred for him. He was able to stay in that tribe, though, because he had relatives, in particular his wife and and others, that were in power. But as they began to die off, he began to lose that security until, in 1622, he and many of his followers had to flee Mecca, and they went to modern-day Medina. Medina was, was called... Uh, something like Yeshib, and ultimately was changed to um, the, the land of the prophet, which is Medina. Now, that also, 1622, is what marks the uh, Islamic calendar. That becomes year one for them. Now, he goes there to Medina, and there are many Jews there, and they embrace his monotheistic religion, And he begins to grow in power till the point that he's able to come back to Mecca in 630 and he's able to take it without any need for force. His army is so big at that time, he's able to take it, comes in, comes into the Kaaba, the big black stone, goes in there and destroys the 320 idols and sets up Islam. He ends up dying two years later in 632. The name Islam means submission. Uh, A Muslim is a submitter. It is one who submits to the will of Allah. It's important to understand that the Arabic word Allah is just a generic name for God. Uh, Christians use the same name in uh, Arabic-speaking worlds, Allah. So, uh, one of of the things that I want to just kind of highlight a about this religion. There's, there's lots of stuff that we could talk about, but I want to begin to focus and hone in on one specific theology. And that is, I want to, I want to hone in on the theology of salvation. And, and, and ultimately, what we see is that when Muhammad dies, uh, this, this religion began with just him hearing from this angel, right? And so he would write down the sayings that he was, he was hearing or he would tell other people. After he died, those began to be collected. It's a long story how that was done into the Quran. So this is a collection of Muhammad's sayings. The Quran means recitation, Recite. This, this is what he received and is recited by Muslims. Now, one of the things that's interesting about when Muhammad died, and that is who would take power next? 
there was a difference of opinion of what should happen. That's why we have Sunni Muslims and we have Shiite Muslims. The Sunni Muslims believed that it should be an election, and that's how you should determine who comes into power next, whereas the Shiites believed that it's blood. Whoever is in the next line in, of Muhammad's line, that that person should take power. There are many different sects of Islam. One of the other major ones, besides the Sunni and Shiite, just for your information, is the Sufis. Uh, my first experience with Sufis was also in Egypt. These are more of your charismatic, if you will, Muslims. They are mystics. Often one of the ways that they try to, to get closer to God is by spinning. And if you Google them, you'll see some of this where they'll spin themselves into trances to have relationship with God through that way. By the, you'll see that just recently, by, you know, just a couple weeks ago, in Egypt, uh, it was quite sad, but uh, some Muslims, they didn't identify who they were, uh, they attacked a Sufi mosque uh, in, there in Sinai, uh, set off an explosion, and then were waiting outside with guns and shot them. Uh, I, I just bring that up because right now there's, there's just a lot of tension between the different uh, sects of Islam, and that's just one example of, of some of the stuff that's going on there. I just want to say this, though. To paint a broad brush, though, and say, oh, that's Islam, I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, we're, we are talking about political issues. We're talking about complicated, multifaceted issues. And I think that we as Christians need to be more careful not to just paint these broad brush of, of a militant you know, Islam or this is extremist type brush strokes and begin to realize that things are a lot more complicated than that. Okay. So in the... The, the words that Muhammad was getting, they got collected, they got put into the Quran. And in particular, uh, I, I want to read for you their understanding of salvation. And it's found in Surah 23. And, and I just want to take a moment just to explain to you how the Quran is arranged because it'll give you perspective with regards to Christianity. The, the, the Quran is, is arranged not as a story. Remember, it's a bunch of sayings. So the way that it ultimately got arranged is by groupings of sayings that are called surahs. You could consider them a chapter of sayings. And the Quran is arranged by how large the saying is. So chapter 1 or surah 1 is a lot of sayings. And then it goes smaller, smaller, smaller until you get to surah 114, which is the least amount of sayings that are grouped together into the Quran. Uh, this is what we read then, surah 23 Verses 102 to 103. Then those whose scales of good deeds are heavy, they are the successful. They're the ones that are going to make it to heaven. And those whose scales of good deeds are light, they are those who lose them their own selves. In hell will they abide, the Quran says. So, the understanding in Islam is that there is a paradise awaiting for you. Now, this paradise that's waiting for you is talked about in different ways. I've heard Muslims talk about it um, as rivers of wine. I've heard, you can read in the Hadith, it's talked about a place with giant trees that cast lots of shade. Because if you live in the desert and it's hot, a place that's got some shade is paradise. It's talked about as a place that has 72 virgins that are waiting for you. I just, I just want to make a comment about that for a moment. This is another spot where it's very easy to make assumptions. I have gone to mosques and I've had conversations with imams. And, and, and in particular, I was in Los Angeles having a conversation with an imam. And he believed, yes, you get 72 virgins when you die. And I asked him, I go, is that true of the women as well? And he goes, uh-huh. And I, I looked at him and I said, I don't know if my wife would think that's paradise. And, uh, and he started laughing. Like, he thought that was hilarious. Uh, but, but I've, um, some of you are just getting that. Okay. <laughs> but then I've gone to mosques and I've talked with other imams and they would say, no, absolutely not. That whole 72 virgins thing, that's, that's not right. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit later why, why it is that you'll get such a variant of, of, of opinion on this. But again, my point in saying that is... Become a student of people. Ask them what they think and that they believe when you're, when you're talking with people about their beliefs. So, 
That's what paradise looks like in Islam. And if you want to make it to that paradise, what you need to do is you need to do a lot of good deeds. And if you can do more good deeds, and think of a scale here, if you can do more good deeds, it's weighing that scale, and less bad deeds, then you have the best chance of making it into paradise. However, the Quran is very clear that even if you do a lot of good deeds, that still isn't a guarantee, though, into paradise. It is still Allah's decision of whether or not you will make it or not. You could have more bad deeds than good deeds, and you could make it. You could have more good deeds than bad deeds, and you could not make it. The only way, though, that you are assured that you can make it into paradise is if you die in service to Allah. Now, this is an important point that a lot of people misunderstand because this will be often referred to as jihad. Jihad just means struggle. It, it, is, it is what every Muslim is doing. They are in submission to Allah, struggling to do good deeds. So every Muslim is, is seeking to do that. The, the question becomes, in your Sir, in your, in your effort to do good deeds, it's if you die in service of doing those good deeds, that's your guarantee. And that's where we'll see this often played out with uh, uh, suicide bombers and stuff like that. But that's not how um, the vast majority of Muslims are looking at that. They're looking at that as I'm seeking to do good deeds that my scales will weigh more with the good than the bad so that when Allah judges me, I have the best possible chance of making it into that paradise. Okay, so with that understanding of, of salvation in mind, with that understanding of what paradise looks like, I now want to give you a Jesus perspective of that. I wanna, I wanna help you to see the, the uniqueness of Christianity on that type of a view because that view was a similar view to what Jesus was speaking into as he comes and he's speaking with Jews that are seeking to follow the law of God and they're seeking to do so in a way that will be good enough for them to make it to heaven. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me. I want to look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus preaching, often referred to as a sermon on the mount. And in this sermon, he gives a hard word. He says this, chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is a significant understanding in Christianity. Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to abolish the law. The law is still there, and you still need to follow that law, he's saying. But now look, he's going to double down on that. In verse 20, he says, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to make it. As, as, as I begin to shed this Jesus spotlight onto this theology of salvation in heaven, what I want to do is I just want to make two points that Jesus makes repeatedly. And the first one is simply this. You are not good. You're not good. And one of the messages that Jesus met, preaches over and over again is that you will, in fact, never be good enough on your own. In fact, Jesus says in chapter 5 of verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is saying, listen, you want to make it to paradise? If you want to make it to paradise, you're going to have to do a whole lot more than you're doing. And what, he's, what Jesus was doing is he was pointing your attention at a group of people that followed the law in every way and were going to incredible extremes to make sure that they were doing everything right. And Jesus is saying, they're not even good enough. And you could only imagine those that are hearing Jesus are thinking, we in trouble. 
Like, if, if they can't make it and they've dedicated their lives to it and I suck, I have no chance. And here's, here's one of the things that I really want to challenge you on. One of the biggest challenges that we face is that many of us think, though, that this first point, many of us think that we, in fact, are pretty good. I was actually talking with some young adults recently, and they, uh, they said to me, they go, Andy, they go, um, God's been teaching me that I'm not good. And I, and I said, really? Well, how's that? And they said, um, I, I said, how'd that happen? And they said, um, I got married. <laughs> and I go, I go, what happened? And they go, they re- I go, I realize that I'm incredibly narcissistic, that I'm incredibly self-centered, and, uh, and I can be a real jerk. And, uh, and I, I got to tell you, there's nothing magical about marriage that pulls that out. All you have to do is just spend a lot of time with somebody else, and you start to realize, I suck. Like, Honestly, guys, I, I've been a pastor for 16 years. I have led countless missions trips around the world. And I can tell you right now that the average Christian can go 10 days before the true one comes out. And it ain't pretty. Some of you have been on missions trips. You're like, uh-huh, I've seen that. It's not good. Some of you have been on YWAM. You're like, I've seen the real heart of darkness, right? It gets better. Don't worry. You know, but honestly, you, those of you that have been in there, you know what I'm talking about. You got to work, work through some stuff. You begin, to, you begin to realize, man, I got some work to do in here. Things aren't as good in here as I thought they were. And this is a message that Jesus is, is preaching over and over again. You think you're good, and that's part of the problem. You think you can do good stuff. You think you can work your way, but, you're, but you can't. In fact, Jesus gives a hard word to uh, a rich ruler in Luke 18. This rich ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, listen, I'm actually, I'm a pretty good guy, Jesus. And he goes, and he goes what do I got to do to get into, get into heaven? What do I got to do to get into paradise? And, and Jesus says, well, just, just follow the Ten Commandments. And the guy's like, I've been doing that since I was a boy. He's like, I got it. I've been, I, I, like, I'm in. And Jesus is like, that's great. You know, good job, right? And, and you can imagine the guy's like starting to walk away. And Jesus is like, oh, just... Just one more thing, though, before you go. And he's like, uh-huh, yeah, Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go home. I want you to sell everything you have and then come back and follow me. And we'll head to heaven together, right? And, the, and what does the guy do? The guy goes away and, real, and he's like, I'm, I can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus is like, uh-huh. And then his disciples are like, uh, Jesus, we think we're in trouble, too. Uh, and, then, and then they said this to Jesus. They go, they go, who can even get in, Jesus? And he's like, ah, now, now you're asking the right question. Now you're starting to see that you're not as good as you think you are and that you actually are in, a, a, you have a problem. You, you're in trouble. And Jesus then said this. He goes, what's impossible for man is possible for God. This is, by the way, one of the things that Muslims have the most difficult time with with Christians. You know what that is? As, I have had, as I've talked with different Muslims, it's this. It's that God loves you so much that God would humble himself and become a man and that God would seek to rescue you even at the cost of his life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, flip with me over there. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says in verse 28, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus realizes and knows that you and I have a problem, and it's much bigger problem than just trying to do enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds. The Bible is very clear over and over again that you and I are dead We are spiritually dead. It's not even like you just got to do more. It's like, no, 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 you don't realize you're dead. You you, you can't do anything. You are so broken. And, And this becomes really critical to understand with regards to Christianity. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter two. He says in verse one, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those um, who are disobedient. No, notice what he says here. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Bible saying, you came into the world broken. You came into the world spiritually dead. And now I just want to highlight what this means. Because I find that there are so many Christians that don't understand this point. Christianity does not believe that when you die, you get to go to this paradise. That's just full of all this stuff that you really want. You know why? Because under the Christian view of eternal life, that would be hell, not heaven. Listen, think about it for a moment. How, how long is it going to take before you get bored of rivers of wine? How long is it going to be before you're bored of shade? How long is it going to be until you're bored? I'm sorry, guys, but you're bored of 72 virgins. It will happen. Like, that's not going to satisfy you for eternity. And so there's a lot of us that sadly have a view of eternal life where we're sitting on clouds, playing harps, thinking, this is boring. This is brutal. I don't want any part of that. Well, I don't either. And Jesus is like, I didn't preach anything like that. The Bible isn't talking about a paradise like that. Jesus says in John chapter 17, he says, this is eternal life, that you might know the Father, that you might know God and that you might know Jesus Christ whom he sent. Eternal life, paradise in the Christian worldview is relationship with God Almighty. Relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. My, like, listen, NYA, you will never get bored of God. Amen? Like, this is one of the things that I love about being a Christian. I don't want paradise. I want God. I want to be with him and enjoy him forever. There is an adventure waiting for you that is beyond words. And I look forward to that day. But God is saying, Jesus is preaching and he's saying, you will never make it there on your own because it's not about some place, some garden that you get this cool stuff. It's about relationship with a holy and good God and you are evil and sinful and broken. How do you ever expect to be in relationship with that God? How do you ever expect to be in his presence? He'll, his, his very presence will destroy your brokenness. You need to be fixed. This is the second point. Jesus preached over and over again, you're not good, but God is. God is good and he loves you even when you don't love him. Now, I don't want to pick on Islam, but listen, the Quran says over and over again, Allah loves those who love Allah. The Bible says over and over again, God loves even his enemies and calls us to do the same. And he did so through his son who came willingly to die for you and I to do what? To fix our broken relationship with God and each other. Jesus is our ransom. He took our place on the cross, defeated evil so that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your brokenness. He sees Christ's righteousness. He sees his son and something very cool happens in the midst of that. Let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked, listen to this, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to think about what that means then. It's saying, listen, as a Muslim is living, there is, there is no guarantee of whether or not they're going to make it. But Jesus is saying, you do have a guarantee. And now, I think about what this guarantee is. The guarantee is that you are going to get paradise. Remember, what's paradise? Relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to guarantee that you're getting relationship with God because I'm going to come and I'm going to live in you now. The Holy Spirit is going to live in you now. You don't have to wait for death for heaven. 
Heaven begins now in Jesus as God begins to live in and through us. And that there is a day coming that that spirit is going to usher us home. It's going to take us home to our heavenly father. And it is a guarantee to you that you are saved because God's already in relationship with you. And it is only going to be fulfilled perfectly when we meet God face to face. Amen. This is a Jesus perspective of what it looks like for us. And and, and I just want to close with this for us to stop trying to earn God's love and favor. You already have his love. And God has already made a way for you into relationship, paradise with him through his son. And the question then for you and for me is do, is do I want that? Am I willing to, to, to take on relationship with God through Jesus? Am I willing by faith to trust that he does love me and that he did make a way for me and that he died for me because he really does love you. And that begins to change everything. And it's my prayer that as you begin to embrace that, that you would begin to live that, that you would begin to serve. In particular, that you would start doing good deeds not because you have to, but you would start doing good deeds because you want to. Because of what God has done in your life, that that overwhelming joy of the love you've received, you want to give that love to other people. That's the good news of the gospel that will change your life. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you love us. Uh, I am so thankful that I don't have to depend on my ability to do good deeds. I am so thankful that your son is perfect and that, that Jesus, you died for us and that we have the guarantee the seal, the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we know we have relationship with you and that that will be fulfilled when we die and we meet you face to face and this journey together is going to explode in opportunities that we can only even begin to barely imagine. So God, I look forward to that day and I pray for each one of us here that we would embrace relationship with you and that each one of us here would begin to serve you because we want to that we begin to serve you because we're just madly, deeply in love with who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to be those kind of people in your power, in your name. Amen. Hey, this is Daniel Markin. Andy Steiger. Tristan Clausen. And we are here to discuss Andy's sermon from the past week. Uh, Any of the stuff that Andy didn't say that he's urging and burning to say, we want to get that out in this podcast. I'll tell you one thing that I'm excited to say, and that is, this is our first NYA podcast, which you've been dreaming about since you interned with me. I can tell you right now, day two of internship, Daniel comes up to me. He's like, I can imagine us doing an NYA podcast. And I, and I just put my hand on his shoulders, looked into his eyes and I said, one day, Daniel, that's, this is that day. It is that day. And we're excited to be doing this. Andy, you know what? I talked on we're, we did a, we're doing a new series, which I think is fantastic, and it's called uh, Jesus and the World Religions. And then what we're doing for each sermon then is we're honing in on a specific world religion or cult, uh, otherwise known as a new religious movement. And then we're we're looking at a Jesus perspective of that religion. So last Friday at NYA, I spoke on the topic of Islam, and so we we're looking at a Jesus perspective of Islam. And as I began to talk about it, and as I was just even preparing for it, I I realized I'm only going to be able to talk a little bit about Islam. And in fact, I didn't want to take up the whole time, you know, giving, you know, world religions class on Mm -hmm. on Islam. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to introduce people to a specific theology of Islam. And then I wanted to move forward uh, to show a Jesus perspective of that. Yeah, of that theology. Yeah, of that theology. mm -hmm. What is that that little theology piece or that aspect of it? in Islam, and then we're going to say, oh, compare it to Christianity, and that's what we did. Exactly. And then uh, a bunch of people were coming up to us ask afterwards, and they were saying, man, I have all these questions about Islam, and I'd like to know th- this or that. And and Daniel and Tristan and I were thinking, well, this would be a great topic to do for the, on the podcast and just briefly talk you know, more about what Islam is, teaches, uh, that we couldn't talk about it the sermon because we didn't want to spend the whole time doing that. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's the second biggest religion in the world. 
So it's very difficult to talk about that in, you know, like 40 minutes. Is it the second minutes. biggest? Second I believe biggest. it's the second what biggest. What's the first biggest? Christianity. Christianity. Really? Which is interesting, by the way. Uh, I didn't realize this. I was just researching it uh, a couple days ago. Not only is Christianity the largest religion, but by far the largest, uh, well over double the size of Islam. Well, isn't there just massive movements? Because we think Christianity is dying in the West, but you look to the Eastern world, you look to right. China and to Korea. That's what you often hear, and, and that is true uh, from what I understand, is that Islam is growing faster than Christianity. Mm. But I'm talking about Christianity exploding in uh, Yeah, but then the that's East. happening as well. Christianity is exploding in places like China. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now it's growing quite rapidly. But uh, let's get into some of the topics of Islam. Let's just start with uh, Tristan. Tristan, give us a, a, an understanding of how Islam came to be. So Islam came about in, I believe it was the 4th or 5th century. That's actually an important one to yeah. just start with. Uh, I, one of the dates I said at uh, NYA is that Islam started with Muhammad in the year he was born was 570. And there was some confusion over that, whether or not that was A.D. or B.C. I didn't specify. So what is it? I mean, we, people say B.C. and A.D. What does that mean? Well, before Christ or after Christ, but A.D. Is, uh, stands for year of our Lord, so cool. auto domini. So, so Muhammad was born in the year 570 after Christ. Uh, and that, so that's important to understand, like, he wasn't born at the time of like Socrates or, or, or earlier. Uh, he was born well after Jesus. This is a, a religion that springboards off of the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. So, uh, you know, 570 years after Jesus, Muhammad's born, but it's not until around the year 700 that Islam as a religion really becomes established. Uh, which is which is an important point that I brought up and that, that I think we need to talk about. Somebody asked me this question too after Enway. They said, um, "Andy, if it comes from the Judeo, if Islam comes from a Judeo-Christian, you know, background, you know, that you know, Islam is a monotheistic religion that it sees itself, and this is important to understand, it sees itself in the tradition." of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And what I mean by that is, this is this is the Islamic perspective. They believe that Adam, with Adam and Eve, that Adam was a prophet. Mm-hmm. And that that line of prophets continued with prophets like David. And a lot of the prophets... Moses? And Moses. And a lot of the is prophets... Abraham? Yeah, Abraham. Abraham, yeah. And a lot of the prophets we would identify leading up to Jesus being... Uh, one of the great prophets. Mm-hmm. And each mm. of the prophets was believed to have written a book. And the book that Jesus w- wrote, according to Islam, is the Injil, which we call the Gospel. Now, this is an important aspect, though, of Islam. And that is that they have this theology of abrogation. And in particular, that means that there can be theologies that come after previous theologies, and they will trump those earlier theologies. And so Muhammad is seen as coming after Jesus. And so in that sense, he is a greater prophet within Islam. Now, this is, this is kind of unique, though. They believe that all of the books that were written by the previous prophets, like Jesus, back down to Adam, that all of their, all of their books were corrupted. We don't have any originals of those. That's why they don't accept the Bible. That's why they don't accept the Gospels, mm-hmm. is they would, they would argue, and they get very into apologetics, trying their best to argue that those books are corrupted, you can't trust them, and the only book that you can trust is Muhammad's book that he brought, which is the Quran. And, and he, did Muhammad write the Quran? Because you were mentioning in your talk, it was his sayings. How does that work? Yeah, no, Muhammad didn't write it. He, again, according to their understanding, Muhammad was receiving revelation, he was receiving these sayings from, from an angel, and then he was memorizing those and writing those, writing those down on different things, like parchment of paper here or a bone there. Like we, we have uh, those kind of historical fat, uh, artifacts. Uh, but it wasn't until he died. And then in particular, it wasn't until a major battle was lost in Islam uh, well, or in, in the past with, with Muslims that uh, some of the the people who had memorized these sayings died in that battle. 
And it was at that time that they realized that we that they need to write these down. It can it can no longer go on being uh, memorized and told to the next generation because you could lose that generation. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. when it ultimately got written down. Cool. Interesting. So yeah. Written down then. So anything else you want to add to that? Because I have two <clears throat> questions that are burning within me. As I also far have a question too. So as Islam, because yeah. I you know your talk went it was awesome. And it, uh, it like answered a lot, gave us some background. And again, you were focusing on kind of the salvation right. portion of things. Well, well, one of the things that I talked about in the talk, and I want to talk about again, is in my you know master's studies, I I studied world religions like a lot of people do. But then I actually took a, a an entire course in my master's work that was just dedicated to Islam uh, as well. But one of the things that I have learned over and over again in my time studying a world religion academically and then going out into the real world and seeing it practice is that those are virtually never the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- mm-hmm. What I find is that I'll head, uh, like, I'll give you an example. One time I went to uh, Thailand and I saw all these unique Buddhist practices taking place and, I, and I've never I've never read those practices before. Like I'm like, I don't understand why you do that. So I talked to one of the monks and I said, you know, why is it that you do that specific practice, you know, putting gold leaflets on, on Buddha's right or, or maybe that incense or whatever it is. And, and he, and he said this to me, he goes, well, he goes, well, he goes, yeah, that's not really a part of Buddhism. He goes, we just do that because it brings people in and then it, then they, they give their donations. So he's like, mm-hmm. that, it's a very cultural thing that we do. And he wasn't saying that pejoratively, and I didn't take it that way either. He, he was just saying, this is just culturally how we practice, you know, Buddhism in Thailand. Because one of the things that caught me off guard, too, in Thailand is you'll hear a lot about God. But when you study Buddhism, and we'll get into this, we're going to be dealing, dealing with this one later, uh, they don't believe that God exists. So, so what, what with the contradiction there? Well, what you find is how a religion gets practiced is cultural. So you have things like folk Islam. That's that's well established and understood. That there is often this mixing of animism and and Islam together, and you will have specific practices of Islam depending upon where you are, not just culturally, but personally as well. Sorry, what is animism? Animism is is more of a generic belief in a spirit world. Okay, you know, and then yeah. that ultimately gets tied teased out very specifically in different cultures with the way that they're either um, trying to appease their ancestors or the way that they're trying to commune with spirits. And a lot of those old practices will then get caught and readopted and practiced in the religion that gets established, such as uh, Islam in a new in a new place. Okay, but aren't there also offshoots of things, because this is where my question is going, is when I think Islam, I think about what I see in the news. I think about uh, Islamic terrorism. And that you say, they will say Islam is a religion of peace, but then you go read the Quran and you see the sayings and it's actually, no, you kill the infidel. You do all these things. So who's not practicing true Islam? Is it the people who aren't killing that aren't actually practicing true Islam? Or is it the people who are actually on these military struggles, the military jihad, are they the ones who are actually not practicing it correctly? Right. So that's a really complicated question. And to begin to untie that one, the, the first thing you need to understand is that jihad, which I talked about at NYA, just means struggle. Every Muslim is seeking to struggle to do good deeds and that their good deeds could outweigh their bad deeds. And I should just mention this. I didn't get a chance to at NYA. One of the ways that a Muslim seeks to do good deeds is by following the five pillars, such as reciting the Shahada. Uh, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. If you want to become a Muslim, you have to recite and believe that. Uh, the next thing that they do is pray five times a day. Uh, as well, on top of that, you need to give what's called zakat, which is uh, you need to give a tithe of 2.5%. Uh, you need to practice Ramadan. You need to uh, make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Th- those are your five pillars. Those are your those are five practical ways that you could do good deeds to seek to outweigh your bad deeds. Now, uh, with so that that's jihad. You know, I'm I'm seeking to do those. I'm yeah. struggling to do those good things. Now the question becomes, well, why are they killing people? Well, there is a belief in Islam that if you do jihad, if you struggle and you die in the midst of doing good deeds for Allah then that is a guarantee into paradise. Whereas 
uh, what I read in the Quran at NYA, when your good and bad deeds are weighed, it's still Allah's decision whether or not you, you know, mercy is shown and you're gone and you get accepted or not. I mean, you could have more good deeds and bad deeds and not make it because it's still, uh, Allah is still sovereign in that way. Um, so then you can see where jihad could be understood as giving to a charity and, and loving your neighbor, but it could also be seen as dying in a holy war or something else. Now, think about war, though, for a second. Uh, to Islam's credit, uh, I, I would argue that this idea of extremism, again, you, you got to be careful when you're talking about Islam because you're talking about something that is integrated with cultural and religious practices in that specific area. So then to say, oh, that's Islam, you got to be so careful with that. That doesn't necessarily mean that something is Islam. Uh, such as uh, certain practices that are that we see in different countries, um, w- whether or not that would be considered Islam or not. Now, this question of, you know, there seems to be different factions in Islam. That's correct. You, for example, you've got Sunni Muslims. Those are Muslims that believe that after Muhammad died, that the next leader needed to be elected. You got Shiite Muslims, and they believe that the next leader after Muhammad died. Uh, needed to be a blood relative. Well, now you've got that division that's happening there. But then on top of that, you got Sufis underneath that, in which that's more of a mystic practice of Islam. And there is inner fighting between those. Is that all Islamic? Is that very cultural? Well, it's a mix of both, I would say. Now, with regards to the question of whether or not Islam is a religion of peace or not, that is a contested question because I could go into the Quran and I could show you verses like Surah 9 where it says to, to kill the infidel, right? But then I could show you lots of other, you know, surahs that tell you to love people, right? So, I mean, y- you could cherry pick. And I, and I think we have could to be careful. you do that with the Bible too? That, and that's my, that was my point. I think you could do that with the Bible too. And people would be very offended by that. You know, that you just went to the Bible and cherry picked the verse that you want that said what you want. And you excluded all those others because we know in the Bible there's some stuff in there that if you cherry picked and went to a very specific verse, you know, and I think about uh, an imprecatory psalm, for example. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Break, your, break their teeth, O Lord, of yeah. my enemies. Yeah, people would be like, what kind of religion is this? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, well, you got you to gotta be fair when you're looking at what the religion is teaching. Now, where Islam gets unique, and a lot of people don't know this, is that the Quran only references Muhammad four times by name and says very little about Muhammad. And the reason is, is because it's sayings, right, that he's hearing. So he's not hearing sayings about the life of Muhammad, right, that he's going to write down. You know, he's living his life, and he's getting these revelations that he's seeking to write down, supposedly, right? Uh, Which, by the way, I'm just going to interject here. As a Christian, uh, Galatians, Paul tells us right at the beginning, listen, if you get a message from an angel, like a person or an angel that contradicts the gospel that was brought to you by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then he says, let them be accursed. So I'm just going to throw that out there right there. Uh, If you've got God in the flesh, there's no need for anyone else, which, by the way, here's something else is interesting. Uh, Muslims really respect Jesus. And the reason is, is because Jesus could do miracles and Muhammad could not. Mm. Uh, there, There are no... There are really no recorded miracles of Muhammad, except a Muslim would say the bringing forth of the Quran was a, was his miracle. Uh, the Hadith has some strange miracles where he takes a, 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 a he goes for a swim in a pool and some rocks steal his clothes and run off with it. Or oh, at, that happens to me all the time. I know. Or there's one in the Hadith where water is coming out of his fingers. So, but they really don't really. You know, you don't hear those ones really talked about. You just hear, oh, his miracle was bringing forth the Quran. Whereas Jesus, the Quran says, was born a virgin, was able to bring people back from the dead, that kind of thing. And they're like, well, that's pretty impressive. So they have a lot of respect for Jesus in that regard. I had no idea. That's cool. So now, so this is the key then. If the, if the Quran doesn't talk a whole lot about Muhammad and your goal is to do good deeds so that you can make it to paradise, well, one of the best ways that you could do those good deeds is if you made your life as close to that as Muhammad as possible. Because of Muhammad, although he didn't know for sure if he would make it to paradise, at least you figure if, if he's the greatest prophet, then the best chance you've got of making it is to follow the greatest prophet. 
So the desire for the Muslim then is to imitate Muhammad for that reason. How do you do that if you don't know much about him, if anything, from the Quran? Well, there's other, there's other uh, holy books in Islam, such as the Hadith and such as other books like the life of Muhammad. Again, I'll put out a caveat as I've talked with Muslims. They'll tell you, yeah, Sandy, but depends upon who translated it. or It depends upon uh, what chain of isnads you're looking at. So uh, I talked a little bit about that at NYA. Those are like telephone tag. Who, who said what? To, who said what? They got it from Muhammad. At any rate. That all said, when you read the life of Muhammad then, uh, which very few Muslims do, uh, they, they kind of... From my understanding, most Muslims tend to be more nominal in the sense that they, they'll maybe have read the Quran. Many of them haven't. And the reason for that is, is very much, and again, I'm not trying to point fingers because they could be just pointed right back at us. It reminds me of the time in, in Christianity before the Reformation when we only had Latin Bibles, mm -hmm. right? Nobody could read it. Well, you have a similar thing that's been happening in Islam where it was only in Arabic and it's only recently that it's being translated and only certain... Certain factions of Islam believe that you should read a translated version. What do you make of when they say Islam needs to have its own reformation? Because I've heard that tossed around. Oh, well, I think that people mean that in multiple ways. One is, and we're starting to see that, the translation of the Quran for a long time. So it that, wasn't translated. That would be reformation right there. Yeah, that'd be one. Another one that's happening like in Iran is the women being treated fairly and not as, and not as uh, cattle. Yeah. Uh, and it's particularly with places like Saudi Arabia. Now, just to just to finish off this idea, then, if you want to know what Muhammad was like, you want to read the book, The Life of Muhammad. When you read the book, The Life of Muhammad, what you see is that Muhammad was constantly in battles. Uh, that's one of the ways that, it, that he rose to power. I mean, in some ways, you could see Islam as not as a religion as being the afterthought, that the religion wasn't the main driving force and. and in my, a lot of my historical studies of it, that's that's more of the direction that I lean, is that in some ways that's a way that he was able to unify uh, the Middle East and ha and and get get a following. But it really wasn't until uh, he was winning military victories and gaining wealth that things really began to take off for Islam. And you see in the life of Muhammad that he practiced. He was he he was very harsh. So, for example, the life of Muhammad will tell you about how singers would sing satirical things about Muhammad, and he would cut their heads off. He would kill them for doing that, mm. or making fun of him. Listen up, Getter. Well, and the, the thing that's interesting is you see that with cartoons, right? Mm -hmm. Where if somebody makes a cartoon and mocks Muhammad or whatever, they'll, they'll kill that person. Yeah, because that, that's what happened in Paris, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, for, to the Muslim, there's historical precedence for that. Yeah. And so that's where you can get this extremism where, well, Muhammad did that during war, so then I can do this because we are calling a holy war on this yeah. culture or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Totally. So yeah. that's how they'll do it. Is every Muslim doing that? Absolutely not. But there are those that do, yes. Tristan, what was your question? Oh, I was just wondering about, okay, so if they believe that Jesus is a prophet, right? So what don't they believe about Jesus? What don't they believe about the life of Jesus? And that, that's a great question. The, the thing that they don't believe in, in fact, not only do they not believe it, but they, they see it as detestable, is that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And by the way, this brings us back to the, the beginning of this conversation with regards to is Islam a part of the Judeo-Christian worldview, even though it has its tries to get its roots in there. And here's my question back to you guys, and this will get answered. Your question, Tristan, will get answered in the midst of this. Uh, is Islam worshiping the same God? It's a monotheistic religion claiming to be a part of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Are they worshiping the same God? I'll say no. On the surface, you could think that, but the more, the, like, the more you peel back the layers, the more you actually find out it's not the same God. I'm actually kind of talking about this when I'm talking about Mormonism this week because Mormons will describe themselves as Christians, mm -hmm. but they what they actually say and and what they mean are two completely different things. And then the same thing would be true of of Islam as well. So it would be like me saying, "Hey, I talked with uh, I'm talking to Daniel, right?" And and Daniel's like, "Hey, who are you talking with this weekend?" I was like, "Oh, I was talking with Tristan." And he's like, oh, you're talking with Tristan. I go, yeah. He goes, which Tristan? Like, Tristan, your son? And I'm like, no, 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 no not Tristan, my son. But, uh, this, uh, you know, the other Tristan, the intern Tristan, 
the the one that is uh, you know three hundred pounds, six foot eight, you know the black one, right? Who uh, has a Jamaican accent, and they're like Daniel's like, um, I don't know who you're talking about because that doesn't seem anything like uh, the Tristan, Tristan I know. Yeah, the Tristan yeah. I know, the Tristan you're intern, and that's the same sort of flavor you get with Islam. Is you're like, oh, is it the same God? And it's like, uh, no. Uh, in Christianity, we are talking about a God that is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a, a relational God. This is a very critical aspect of Christianity that a lot of people take for granted, that we that we talk about God being a God of love. Well, if you're going to have a God of love, you have to have a relational God that embodies that love. I mean, who does God have to love before there's anyone other than just God? Yeah, and I guess if you're thinking about Islam and how it's a, it's a monotheistic religion, but Allah is like so perfect and he's so holy. As soon as you compare a human like Jesus, right, to God, and Jesus was saying, I am God, then I guess that would be, you. I guess most Muslims would consider that extremely offensive because you're basically, you're saying I am equivalent to Allah, which is probably the worst thing that you can yeah. say. So, but so do the Jews, right? So that's yeah. the thing that Jesus does prove yeah. over and over and over again that he is the son of God. That's right. So what you have then is that, that they find detestable yeah. is that, is that Jesus is blaspheming, that he's calling himself God. But the part that they find truly detestable, and you're getting at there, Tristan, is that God, who's so holy and other and so great, would humble himself and be willing to take on flesh and not just live amongst us. That's, that's not what really gets Muslims. But the idea that God would serve you. Yeah. That God wouldn't, that, you know, if Allah is going to come and do yeah. that, he's going to come as king supreme. But no, this Jesus comes as a humble servant. And more than that, and this is the part that then Muslim minds just explode over. And that is that God would love you so much that he would die for you. That That's shameful. That's that. like, why would God do that to his anointed and king, holy? Kings don't do that. Yeah. They don't get or, down or to that level. The way they would say it is prophets don't do prophets. that. Prophets. Yeah. God wouldn't do that to his holy prophet. Yeah. I mean, so I've heard the language, and I think it's, we, we should probably close up here, but uh, I've heard the language where people say, well, our Muslim brothers and sisters in Christ, to which I'm, I'm saying, we believe completely different other like things. You don't even believe Jesus is God, because you believe he's a prophet. So mm-hmm. it just you would get into all sorts of different Christian heresies there if you're saying that. So Yeah, we're not talking, God is a person, and we're clearly not talking about the same person. Yeah. Yep. It, I was just agreeing with you. No, no, I, I, I saw you doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was uh, twenty five minutes, and that flew by. That wow. was a lot of fun, mm. and uh, we'll probably hopefully, do. Hopefully, that explained more of it. Yeah, hopefully, and I guess I mean you can always keep learning about this, right? Yep. Um, any resources you'd recommend? I'm thinking Nabil Qureshi's book, right? Uh, Nabil Qureshi. Qureshi. Uh, is a, a great resource. Um, I had the privilege of meeting him. Uh, we, he and I spoke at an event together. And sadly, uh, he, he died of stomach cancer just recently. But his book, uh, Searching seeking for... Seeking God. Sorry, Seeking God, Finding... Seeking no, Allah, Seeking finding Allah, God. Finding Jesus is an excellent book. Yeah. Cool. So uh, hopefully that was helpful. We will see you next week.